0: What, what's happening on here?
1: I'm I'm here. I'm on. Welcome to Attica Struck, the podcast about other Culture and Politics in the News this week. Uh, with me, as always, is David Dykes. Hello. And Chad Watson. Howdy, y'all. And I'm Wes Cheek, and I'm recording from my house this week, because nobody's here. It's a lonely, lonely house, and I'm recording from my living room. But next door, that dog's a gone a barking again. Just a barking pit bull. He's calmed down now, though. Uh, okay, so there is a lot going on this week. But first, uh, Chad, what's going on in Houston? How's how's
2: everything there? Everything. It's hot. Uh, it's it's very hot. It's like hundred degrees. Uh, they call that Arby's weather. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> Arby's weather. <laughs> Eighty to ninety percent humidity. Um, the it's supposed to rain a lot this weekend, and pretty much anyone, anybody associated with the city of Houston. Has been on the on NPR talking about how there's <laughs> no way in the world that the uh, reservoirs can hold any wa- any amount of water. Like if it, so, if it rains for any sustained amount of time, it's gonna flood. I'm sure it uh, will yeah. um, But yeah, it'll be fine. Houston. I mean, Houston doesn't flood that bad. Well, we know anything
1: about Houston. It was really, uh, really well designed, planned out, organized infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and really stringent codes about what is built
2: and where. So I think it should turn out very well. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, it's very, yeah, it'll be really great. And I spent most of my day today on uh Sienna Plantation at a, which is not a plantation, well, probably was a plantation <laughs> at one point, uh, but is now a planned community uh, in the uh, Fort Bend School District where I went to uh professional development. When you
1: you went to professional development, did they give you like a a little necklace with a picture on it of an enslaved person who's buried on the plantation
2: that you have to learn about them throughout the professional development? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. They did. And we (laughs) learned about... uh, where where their family was sold to, like what plantations their families were sold to. Probably Siena uh, Plantation. <laughs> yeah, you know, Siena Plantation. Watts plantation there's Watts but there are a lot of plantations down there. Um I assume this is a gated community? Um it is it, it's a gated community without the gates. Uh is- there probably were some gate I just I got I only got to travel on the main roads, so um yeah, there were probably there were some. It, it was very much a gated, yeah, community, and um, very much a gated community. And I went. Uh, I had lunch today at a America's Roast Beef, uh, because at the professional development they were gonna they were gonna feed us with food trucks, but they only thought to bring three food trucks for about four hundred teachers. So I decided to drive. I was like, oh well, surely I can drive somewhere to eat. That'll be. You know, I'll taste some of the local fare, uh, but everywhere around we're just uh, sort of like Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, um, a lot of like oh, a lot of sort of like a lot of like national kind of upper. What's the word? Like a, kind of Roost Chris like chains, like Ruth like uh, Carrabba's. Uh, well, that, well, that is
1: the local, the local uh, flavor of suburban Texas.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, super expensive uh, sit-down chain restaurants. And so I found, uh, I kind of panicked, and I, I ate at the first uh, fast food restaurant I saw, which was <laughs> Arby's. It's uh, kind of amazing
1: that, uh, that hundreds of teachers getting together for professional development wouldn't think about how long they would have to stand
2: in line for lunch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is... um. Yeah, it's it's like the people that plan these things are not really teachers, you would uh-huh. think. You would think these are just like administrators or people that do professional development for <laughs> people who don't stand in line for lunch for a living yeah people
1: that don't stand in line for lunch yeah all right so david how's how's mexico this week
0: the whole country. oh things are great um i'm finally completely done with school Yay. today we had our end of the year party one of the parents opened up their giant house and pool to our entire school. We had tons of food. We didn't have to stand in line for it. (laughs) There was no roast beef, unfortunately, (laughs) uh, or horsey sauce. But, uh, yeah, there was tons of great food and uh, got to hang out with all the kids and everything. And we gave out the yearbooks. Everybody signed their yearbooks. I had kids actually ask me to sign their yearbook, which was odd. I felt like Roy Moore. <laughs> uh, but I didn't say anything like Roy Moore. I said things like "Keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground." that kind of stuff. Meet,
1: m- meet me behind the, the restaurant. Meet me behind the dumpster <laughs> <by> the restaurant. <laughs> meet me at
0: the dumpster. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so now I'm officially done with school. I've got a few Yay. days left before I start driving north towards Del Rio and then Houston and then New Orleans. And then, oh, you're uh, leaving that soon, Tennessee Sunday, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that, and yeah. so yeah, things are great.
1: Yeah, here in New Orleans has been very busy. I did uh, Saturday was the 610 Stompers, the local, um, very popular, uh, all male dad bod dance crew. The 610 Stompers have their annual uh bar crawl, so I went to that, um, and I ended up having the dumbest injury imaginable, which is I woke up the next day and my foot felt like it was broken and I couldn't really walk because I'd been at a bar crawl for six hours. Uh, so that, how that was, can, it was,
0: how do you injure a foot at uh, uh, something called the Stompers?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Stamping around. I didn't even get drunk this year, so it's amazing. I don't know how I did it. And then maybe the secret, I should have been drunk and then I wouldn't have hurt my foot. <laughs> then uh, I had to go on Sunday to get my... Um, recertified for my Red Cross uh, CPR first aid so I can work at a summer camp. So that was pretty exciting because Uh, there's something like I used to get certified all the time and before I had kids like doing the little infant doll CPR was really funny and everyone would joke about it. We kind of like, you know, toss the dolls around and stuff. Now it's just traumatic because you can only picture your own child and the, the dolls kind of wheeze now when you press their chest. So you have a little baby doll and you're pressing its chest and it's going "Ah,
0: ah, ah," over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really glad that you got that training and I will do my best to not make you use (laughs) it this summer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and then the trainer, one of the the baby
1: dolls she had, the head was kind of broken, so there was sand wow. leaking out everywhere. <laughs> like a doll, and I was like, "What did you do this training at a beach last time?" She's like, "No, they weight their heads with sand, and it's for it was, boy, it was uh, very realistic simulation." Um, and then so that was that was Sunday, and then Monday I. Uh, as a a lonely middle-aged person now I decided to go to a show by myself and so I went to see Belle and Sebastian one of my favorite bands ever who've never played in New Orleans before and I've never seen them before so I went to see them uh, and yeah, I, I went as the old guy in the back there by himself um, which is always a good position to be in, and, and it's really weird, as you know, time speeds up rapidly as you get older, so, I still think of Bell and Sebastian as being like one of those kind of new bands that my friend turned me on to the other day, and then, uh, they're, they're playing their songs that I know, and they're like, yeah, this song, I guess this one's 25 years old now, oh, well, I'm right on the cutting edge of music, uh, but, but gonna,
0: that um, feeling of being the old guy standing in the uh, back alone that's uh, why I had that when I went to the Blue Collar Comedy Tour <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> did you really go to the Blue Collar Comedy Tour? yeah when it was in New Orleans I went to it at um, uh, somebody just gave me some tickets to it was at House of Blues uh, I've been in the same room with Jeff, Jeff Foxworthy and Larry the Cable Guy and Ron White and the other dude.
1: I like it because blue-collar for them just means uh, white people. It's very good. Um, well, yeah. And they also have the blue-collar. They have a station on Sirius now. It's like Jeff Foxworthy's blue-collar comedy, and it's just like the all-white people comedy. comedy Get her done. Just getting them done. Um, all right. Well, so there's so much. We have a jam-packed show. We have to actually like put stuff off for next time because there's so much going on this week. To cover, so one of the first things was uh, kind of a sad thing last week is Anthony Bourdain killed himself, uh, and even though he's from New Jersey and New York, uh, uh, there's some stuff to touch on. With um, he did a lot of episodes in, in the South, are some really good episodes. I think some of his best episodes, and when there was kind of this uh, outpouring on social media for for affection for Anthony Bourdain, kind of. Um, unexpected in some ways, but a lot of people were saying about wherever they were from, whether it was, like, Iran or Pakistan or South America, the thing they were saying was, like, oh, I think that uh, the thing I loved about Anthony Bourdain was he really seemed to care about the people here, or he really personalized it, or he didn't seem particularly exploitative in his coverage, Um, and I always felt that way about his episodes that were set in Mm -hmm. Texas and Louisiana, so I wanted to talk about them briefly. So, I know, David, you were saying you never really watched his show
0: very much at all. No, I've never seen... I, d- I don't think I would so know what he looked back. like like well, we if I him saw
2: him. Rest in peace. Rest uh, in peace like a David. picture of him or anything. Gone too soon.
0: Well, so, Chad, I don't know. Were you a No
2: Reservations fan? I, I liked it. It was not something I kept up with. It was not a show right. that I watched on a regular basis, but I always liked it when it was on... And I guess I did. I did catch like the more popular episode, like the McAllen. I guess when you went to McAllen, Texas, uh, was that the, that, that the border
1: episode?
2: Yeah, the border episode. Yeah, that's my favorite. Uh, which is kind of like a a lot of people from Houston end up going to, like kind of like McAllen. We have a lot of people that kind of cross over in McAllen or live in McAllen or they go in. I've taught with a lot of people that used to teach in McAllen, so uh-huh. that. Um, I don't know. That kind of struck me, and uh, and also I liked uh, kind of like the the more I kind of in the news, like the Palestinian, like the episode um, with uh, Israel and Palestine and all those uh, kind of more yeah. hot. Yeah, those are really good, and
1: so it, it's kind of strange because like so for me, Anthony Bourdain, like I mean, he's a good writer, I think, but not like a great writer. He's good at television, not like my favorite. So I don't like. It wasn't like I thought. Oh, this is a brilliant genius putting on TV. But what I did think he he was was kind of using the platform that he had happened into like to the best it could be used. If that right. makes sense, like it, it, using it in a not exploitative way to like kind of just go out and have experiences. Um, so yeah, the Texas episode. What I liked so much about it was it was talking about the border area, and it chose to caric- to show it as a. Um, as a border, meaning that there are people on both sides of it and they're kind of intertwined, uh, right. instead of showing it as, uh, oh, look, isn't this weird? Mexico's right there. Isn't this weird? Texas is over here. So I thought that was yeah. one of the best kind of coverage of what it is actually like to live on the border that I've seen.
2: Right. Yeah, I think so. And that's what I liked about it. That's kind of what I liked about it from talking from people that live. I mean, I, haven't, I don't have that much experience. On the border, but from talking to people that uh, that lived in that area and worked in that area, it, that really seemed to capture what it was like to. Yeah, what is their to, experience uh, there? Is that it's you know
1: a porous border? They feel that they live on both sides of, or what is? Oh think? yeah,
2: totally. I mean, yeah, totally. Like it was, yeah, very porous, and like you have people, you know, that will work on one side mm-hmm. and you know live on the other side, and people that will, you know, go and, you know go out on one side and then come home to live on the other side and kind of people mixing. And then, but then also, you also have sort of the people that are trying to, I don't know, sneak across the border. You have kind of all the, the, the jingoism of, you know, you still have Mm. like the, the redneck, the rednecks are still there. Right. But then also you have. But they speak Spanish. Yeah, they speak (laughs) Spanish. Yeah, they speak Spanish. And, and, um, and then also you have like the people's like, well, like, you know, like most, uh, most uh, most Mexicans are bad, but all the Mexicans I know are good because I live in McAllen. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, you know, like are, that weird.
1: Yeah, one of the interesting things about this is it's very pre-Trump. This is before the rise of Trump, but they're already talking right. about a border wall in that area, and they're out with kind of I think it's the sheriff, like the local sheriff, on a boat in the river, and he keeps saying like, "Why would we need a wall? Like we just don't need one. Who wants one? Like we live on both sides of this river, and it's beautiful like it is, and we kind of." experience it as being uh, both Mexico and America
2: so to have a wall right. here would change the character of what it is um, right which seems like to be my experience for most people not people that necessarily work on the border but people that live mm-hmm. on the border that they're like what's the point of having a border wall like I mean people right can't not that many people get through any that are not supposed to get through get through and right. so what's the point of it seems like a lot of work for for nothing yeah is da- David, are you back with us?
0: Yeah, I'm here. If oh, you okay. can
2: hear us, knock three times. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. Uh,
1: we're starting with the Anthony Bourdain episode. So, yeah, one thing um, I really liked on that episode, and maybe David can speak to this as well, is that it, it kind of um, it, it begins the episode by he talks to his kitchen staff in New York, where he worked at like a high-end French restaurant. And he asks them all, uh, like, what's your name? What do you do in the kitchen? And then where in France are you from? And then all of them answer towns in Mexico. And so he begins by the episode by pointing out that uh, the majority of people are a large amount of the people who are working in high-end restaurants in New York, no matter what the cuisine is, are people who are from Mexico. And then so he begins this... Uh, This episode, which is supposed to be about Tex-Mex food, with with kind of beginning with the conceit that uh, Mexican workers are part of our everyday lives, whether high-end food or not, Um, and then he kind of goes through connections of his kitchen staff to places in Mexico and and Texas. So, and then it ends the episode, I think, really well with they meet a young man who is a sushi chef from Monterey, who's working across the border, I think, maybe in Laredo. And then he's waiting on his—he's married, has kids, lives in America, but he's waiting on his immigration paperwork to be finished up, which, is, if you've ever been in that situation, is stressful as enough as it is. I'm sure it's very different even when you're from a country like Mexico. Um, so he's waiting on his immigration paperwork, so he can't cross back and forth across the border. So he hasn't seen his family— in a number of years. And then so Anthony Bourdain says, well, is there anything you'd like us to take to your family because we're going to Mexico tomorrow? And so he goes and has dinner with his family and tells his family, you know, your son's doing very well. He looks well. And, so then, and you can tell the family's relieved. And so it sets up, I think, the whole episode um, by, by showing that, that that Mexico and America exist in a relationship with each other and that Mexico isn't exotic. Uh, it's it's kind of, you know, a part of who America is, too. And then it ends on the very pointy point of showing that the, the money that, that the chef and Laredo's been sending back has moved his family into a nice neighborhood and bought them a store with a residence on top of it. So that, um, that, that he was able, by not seeing his family for these years that he's not been able to see them, he's been able to make their life uh, materially better, in Mexico. So I'm assuming, David, you know many situations
0: like that. Oh, sure. I mean, that's what people do when they go to the other side, is they Mm -hmm. set up their family, they build an addition onto their uh, parents' house so that they can get married and move in. They Mm -hmm. buy a truck so that they can keep things going on the ranch. People wonder why Mexicans drive trucks so much in the U.S. It's a lot easier Mm -hmm. to nationalize them here. And also Mm -hmm. they're just really practical um, vehicles in a country that still has a lot of agrarian country and that also has um, not very good infrastructure on Ah. the secondary and tertiary roads. Right. And I think one of the things that was interesting to me, uh, you know, you mentioned that I had not that I've never really watched an Anthony Bourdain show or anything. But um, a lot Mm -hmm. of people were saying really nice things about him on uh, social media, Mm -hmm. including a lot of Mexican people who I know who were putting up quotes in Spanish, but they were translated, where he talked about how much he learned in his early days in kitchens Mm -hmm. from all the Mexican staff and uh, just about how good it was for him, that whole experience.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what, that's what I was saying about it. Like, so to me, like Anthony Bourdain was never like, wow, that guy's a hero, that guy's a guy I want to be, or he's the best writer I've ever read, even though he's a decent writer and clever, or he's the best at this, but it was like, wow, he's an actual human on TV, which is really rare. Because I think he's, he's like most people that I know or am friends with, if they were given that opportunity, would use it, I think, in that way. But it's just so rare to see someone use an opportunity that they're given um, in kind of a, a humble way to kind of just exist with other people in the world uh and on that note he did also um two episodes in Louisiana and apparently he had just filmed a new episode in uh Acadiana out in Mamu for Mardi Gras so he went to like the real Cajun country Mardi Gras out in Mamu where they chase the chicken around to make gumbo and stuff so that's apparently coming out this month but he did two episodes. One he did two years after Katrina in New Orleans. Um, and it isn't the greatest episode, but it's one of those that I think if you live here, it kind of uh, pushes your buttons and you're like, wow, that's really neat to see. And it's about how um, restaurants and kitchen staff were some of the first people back after Katrina and how they kind of labored really hard to bring to bring that back. Um, and then the the episode a few years later, Is uh, with Wendell Pierce, and part of it's in New Orleans, and he has Miss Linda and Yakimaine on there. And then he goes out into Cajun country, into Cadiana, and they have uh, like a boucherie. um, And so he shoots the pig famously, he shoots the pig. But it's just another one of those episodes that's really good where they show that as soon as the pig is shot, everyone there knows how to butcher a pig, and each one has an individual dish that they're responsible for, and immediately everyone just starts uh, cutting up the pig and taking their part and then cooking, like, the best meal you've ever had out of their part of the pig. Um, It was was a really, I think it's a really good episode that captures uh, what is great about Acadiana and... um, Cajun people and Cajun cuisine. And then, again, that's one, another example of why I think his show is really good, because he, he doesn't have much presence in the episode. He kind of steps back and just appreciates what's going on, which is um, also a rare skill and, and good to see. So, yeah, that, that was my take on Anthony Bourdain. And also, uh, he, he was really enthusiastic about jujitsu. so it's kind of sad. He was uh, used to frequent the Reddit BJJ uh, subreddit. Um, as New York was his handle Uh, so uh, it's sad to lose a jiu-jitsu person as well so anyway that was my take on on Anthony Bourdain if you guys had anything to add I don't know not me really yeah so uh, I think that talking about the the border episode translates into what we were meaning to talk about this week about Morristown which you guys are more familiar with Morristown than me but I read this really good article in the New York Times this past week uh, by Miriam Jordan called Ice Came for a Tennessee Town's Immigrants, the Town Fought Back, uh, which is about apparently in April of this year, um, ICE, who should of course be abolished and uh, have a Truth and Reconciliation Committee, uh, but ICE um, raided... Raided Morristown, raided a meatpacking plant in Morristown, and arrested or detained a hundred workers. Um, so yeah, like, can either of you speak to kind of like Morristown
2: at all? Because that's your part of the country and not mine. I have like Morristown is not that far away from where I grew up. I grew up in uh, Tazewell, Tennessee. That'll give people some clues <laughs> as to as to who I am. But I was just right over Clinch Mountain, so it was actually. Um, we could go to Knoxville, Tennessee, or we could go to Morristown for uh to do shopping. Like when we had to do big shop, like Christmas shopping, mm-hmm. or anything like that. Like Morristown was the place to go, and um, and it's like a small. I mean, it's bigger than Ta I mean, it's a small kind of uh, community. I don't know. It's smaller than Knoxville, bigger than Tazewell, and I can kind of remember. It's um, and I used to take. They have a community college there, and I used to, when I was in high school, I was part of this uh, sort of like program to get people interested in going to college. And I would go over to Walter State Community College for classes like on Saturday. Um, and I remember, like, in the probably, and I, were, I, were, I grew up working on a farm, and so I communicated with all the farm people. And they, I remember it was maybe like late 80s, early 90s when they started, there was all this like, oh, like, there's all these immigrants coming to Morristown. And they were coming to work on the tomato farms, which they talk about in the article. Mm -hmm. uh, Because there's a lot of tomato farms in uh, Hamlin County and um, Granger County. And they are also, there's meat-placking plants and a lot of like, there's a lot of plants there. So they originally came to do the seasonal work at the at the farms because at the point like no I mean farm work was nobody would do I mean it was no one would do farm work at that time you know high school kids and you know people that were desperate for money and people that were coming up people that were coming up north from like Mexico would do the work and um and they and also there's a lot of plant like there's the meat packing plant and there's several other plants that they started that they would stay like those people that would stay during the off season would get work at the plants and um you know stay throughout the year and it was kind of like that was sort of like scandalous like when I was growing up it was scandalous talk that oh like there's this all these immigrants are just like you know taking over Morristown and taking over Hamblin County which I mean was not really the case I mean but you know when
0: I was growing up yeah David isn't that isn't that near like your sister's farm uh, yeah, it's just a little bit north of there and, uh, Rochelle's sister, uh, lives up there and is, um, uh, uh, she was on, I think she was on the city council. Uh, I know that she's very involved in the community mm-hmm. and, um, uh, David Kaiser's, um, uh, relatives, his, uh, by marriage, uh, live up there. And my impression that I get, I mentioned these people that are mutual friends of ours, but, uh. Uh, my impression of the town is that it breaks an awful lot of the stereotypes that people from outside of the South have about Southern towns. Mm -hmm. It's not progressive, I guess, by any means. It's very conservative in an old-fashioned sense of the Mm -hmm. term, not in the sense of being racist or in the sense of being uh, super, super partisan or whatever, but just conservative in the sense of um, you know, supporting their library and uh, being very anxious about crime that isn't really going out of control mm-hmm. in any way. and right. um, You know, sort of um, uh, the sort of things that small town people get worked up about, they get worked up about. But, um, you know, I know as, mu- as much as I know about the ice raid and everything from the New York Times article, I was going to mention something about that that I really liked which is when they do the quotes about people or mm-hmm. from different people in the community, they keep it in the exact words that the people said it in. So it's non-standard English sort of idiomatic country people talking. And I always mm-hmm. love when they do that and what's coming out of the people's mouth is compassionate and thoughtful mm-hmm. and... Um, Like, it's not the stereotype of the South. Not everybody who uses the word ain't or says you don't got nothing or, you know, double negatives, whatever, not everybody who has a Southern or Appalachian accent has the same opinions and the same ideas. And I always love it when the national stage trots out somebody with a voice that um, causes some cognitive dissonance in people who think they know the South. Yeah, that's one of
1: my favorite, well, you know, one of my favorite books is uh, Kai Erickson's Everything in His Path, because he's a really good ethnographer. He does that with people in West Virginia. It's one of my favorite things ever, because they're saying very deep and profound things in really country voices, which is always uh, good to hear. Um, Also, uh, oh, yeah, one of my favorite scenes in Harlan County, USA, is when the coal miner says... Why? Sure, why we didn't expropriate the machine guns up there. It's like, oh, you expropriate and ain't in the same sentence. That's great. That's probably not an exact quote. I don't even think he sounds that country. But, um, yeah. And so I I was uh, reading today, there's um, a journal, an academic journal, I think, called Southern Spaces. And they have this article called Going South, Coming North, Migration and Union Organizing in Morristown, Tennessee. It's by Fran Ansley, who's at the University of Tennessee, and Ann Lewis, who's at UT Austin. It's from 2011. Uh, it's a really good article, and it links to a documentary that was made around 2007 called Morristown in the Air and Sun. Did either of you
0: see that documentary? I actually started watching it, but I haven't had a chance to finish it. I uh yeah. Turned it on at your recommendation, but um, uh, it's been a hectic week, so I didn't get all the way through it, but it looks great when I've yeah, seen it so yeah. far. Chad, did you see it at all? Or? I
2: did not I did the same thing. I, I saw the article, I guess, right. like I saw that yeah. Southern Spaces article when Elizabeth Cat tweeted it out, and I started right, watching right. the documentary, and I've been kind of... I had to go to the plantation today, so I didn't get to watch <laughs> to <laughs> it. You had to, to put in work on the plantation. I had to put in some work on the plantation, so I didn't get to finish... When yeah, it's, started, really, so. it's really good. I didn't. Uh, I watched
1: it in parts. It's really good, but it's just depressing and distressing for all the reasons you would imagine. And I think what it does really well is that you know we look at this ice raid and we think, um, okay, well, there's uh, a lot of people from Mexico in Morristown, Tennessee, and um, Trump's doing ice, and, and ice is. Doing these horrible things to them, and all, all that's true, but it doesn't give much depth to the issue, which is that it's a much longer, spread-out issue, going back to at least like pre-Nafta era, right. when when um, factory farms in that area are large agribusiness starts to replace family farms in that area, and so they start looking for inexpensive labor, and so people from Mexico start coming up through the area, finding work. And they're finding work as the cheap labor in the area. And then it it ties this in well to what's going on in the border region, where even before NAFTA, we're starting to get the Maquiladora zones, where uh, certain areas don't have tariffs and the goods are produced there. And essentially what this did was, you know, this is part of the neoliberal turn and and kind of the the entrenchment of those neoliberal economics, where kind of the, the economics of Mexico are being completely um, changed and America at the same time. So Mexican workers are not being able to make money, or finding that the only money they can make is working for very, very low pay in maquiladora factories in that region of Mexico. And then American workers at the same time are losing factory jobs because they're not union jobs anymore. Their salaries are low, and they their businesses are trying to make the salaries as low as possible to make production costs as low as possible. And so all of these Mexican immigrants are kind of caught up in this dynamic because the companies want them to come there. And the the leaders, the kind of business leaders of the companies and kind of the Morristown area uh, are really excited about these opportunities because, as you know, the South is largely non-unionized and has Mm -hmm. low-wage workers. So they're able to bring in all these workers and produce parts for Japanese companies, Chinese companies, American companies that are really low cost. Uh, and so, you know, people who are native to that area had moved to Morristown to work factory jobs, and now these factory jobs are disappearing, and they're being re- replaced by um, Mexican immigrants who can do the job for cheaper, because as it explains, if they were in the kind of the maquiladora areas, they now can't, their factory wages there can't support their families anymore. So they have to look north to make, to make an income that in uh, Mexico, where it's a lower cost of living, can help their families. And so they're kind of trapped in this situation as well.
2: Um, yeah, and that was kind of like, uh, kind of growing up in that area, kind of what was happening was, you know, like farm work was good seasonal work for everybody for a mm-hmm. while. And then sort of like farm work, and I guess it kind of, it started with like the decline of tobacco, like when tobacco when people started to catch on that tobacco was going to kill you Um, you know and tobacco was it was not as lucrative to raise tobacco but then it kind of spread from there and there were like Morristown was like Hamblin County and those areas were more oh oh, that's where the big farms are Mm -hmm. you know and that's where the big money was but then like you know they found that you know they could get immigrant labor to work for cheaper and so then everybody went to just got factory jobs but then the factories you know wouldn't pay them enough you know laid everybody off and you know, we're hiring people for half the prices of, you know, and hiring immigrant people for half the prices of, because there were no, I mean, there was no unions at any of the, any of the plants in that area. I mean, and it happened to, it happened in Claiborne County too, like sort of like a lot of that's going on.
0: Right. Um, it, well, they've made a few uh, attempts. I think the uh, foreign laborers have made some attempts to organize
1: yeah. Yeah, there's been there were efforts at the time at unionization and they won some battle of unionization, but it's just like everywhere else in America where it's such an uphill battle to unionize and not only is kind of culture against you the laws and structure of the country are against you and increasingly so and increasingly so, right? And so it's something that we're seeing everywhere. Um one one of my favorite uh Essays that I use using class is the David Harvey uh, piece on class relations, social justice, and the political geography of difference, which is about um, a fire in a chicken processing plant in Hamlet, North Carolina, in the '80s that killed around 20 people or so. But so one reason I use this in class is to I ask them like what caused this disaster, and so if you or what caused this accident, and if you initially do a kind of a reading on it, you will say, okay, it's because the doors were locked and there were a fire. But if you dig deeper into it, you will say, well, it's because there was no union and so there was no one to advocate for safety standards. It's like, okay, yes. But then you step back from that and you say, well, it wasn't just that. It was that there was a demand for low-cost chicken because American workers are making or have less and less buying power each year. Like, we have stagnant wages. We don't have union jobs. like We're deindustrialized. So it's people who are trying to feed their families need low-cost chicken. And so for these low-cost chicken to be manufactured, you have to have these economies of scale that exist in areas where it's cheap to produce, part of that being that you get cheap, exploitable labor, right? And so I think it's the same situation you see in Morristown, as you have uh, cheap, exploitable labor, which when it starts to not be as useful anymore are just expendable people, right? You can have ICE take them away, because who really cares now? I, I see also that it's not... Looking at the chart they have on Southern Spaces, it's not just Morristown. It's the whole area, like you're saying, Chad. So it's like uh, Bells, Monterey, Shelbyville, yeah. Morristown, Collegedale, Springfield, McMinnville, Clarksville, Lenore City, Lewisburg, all have places. And it's big, like you said, big agribusiness, like Tyson Foods, Coke Foods, yeah. McKee Foods, uh... Fort Campbell Military
2: Base in Clarksville, Monterey Mushrooms in Lenore City, right? Um, Yeah, there's... Yeah, like, so, yeah, so many. I mean, that entire area, I mean, there's places, you know... And even smaller... I mean, there are smaller factories, uh, you know, that are around, but... Yeah.
1: yeah, David, I was going to ask you about... So, they have, you know, they're interviewing these people from from Mexico in there, and they're all saying... Well, one guy's saying, well, my mother, when we were in Mexico, we we weren't making money. My mother wasn't able to eat, and so now my mother is able to eat, so I don't want to leave. And then another guy who's, the the working conditions are very bad, and they're suffering under discrimination, and he says, people say, why don't you just go home? And he says, but you have a responsibility to feed your family, so you can't just go home. And then at the same time, it's showing people in kind of the maquiladora areas saying, like, this... This life is not acceptable. We can't make any money. We live in these terrible conditions of poverty. So why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we cross the border to make money?
0: Well, and uh, where I'm from, uh, or where I live here in uh, central Mexico, in the Bajio, in the state of Guanajuato, there's um, it's, there's a lot of small rural communities that they call ranchos here that uh, are not the way that we think of a ranch in the U.S. So much they're more like a village um, organized around, sometimes around ex-haciendas and things like that, and ejido land, like collectively owned land. But um, they don't get much support, there's not much education, and there's not much opportunity. Uh, Where I live, if you are willing to go into uh, the work of um, basically um, taking care of tourists and foreigners. And if you're able to do that, then there's some work doing that. And then there are the big factory farms here that are owned by Birdseye and people like that that grow a lot of um, uh, cauliflower and broccoli. And meanwhile, the water table is dropping and dropping and dropping. And so these rural communities, you have to get a special permit to dig deeper and have water in your community instead of paying a truck to bring it. And uh, when there's a choice between giving a water permit to dig deeper to a foreign uh, factory farm or to a rural community, you can kind of imagine what happens there. And so there's no water, there's little food, uh, there's no, and it, you know, it, the, like back in the 70s, I guess, millions and millions of people went to Mexico City. But that didn't work out so well. Uh, A lot of them came back, some of them are here, and some went on to the U.S. We also get a lot of people who come through here who are coming from Central America, riding on the Beast, you know, the, the freight trains that they ride on the top of. And they get off here to get some water, get some food, try to beg a little bit of money or get a little bit of work so that they can continue the journey north. And they're coming from places that are really, really horrible in Central America.
1: That was the really frustrating thing for me watching the documentary. Is that uh, these these issues are just global economic issues. Are there right. issues of the structure of the global economy? But of course, those have to be done on the ground by people. Right? Like people have to pick the tomatoes when it comes to the ground. But we don't. The structure of the global economy don't worry about those things, of course, as exploited labor, right? And so then, because these people aren't thought of in the system as actual human beings at any stage of it, then it's fine for uh, ICE to round them up if that's what's going to maintain political power, is is this kind of idea about, um, at at the worst, white supremacy, at the the most charitable reading, nationalist supremacy, right, Or, or xenophobia, either way. It's, but it's really the, it's not that immigrants from Mexico don't live in Morristown because they want to subvert the American order. They right. live there because <laughs> the the structure of our global economy requires them and needs them and forces them to live there and then uh, treats them like garbage when they are there and then uh, th- throws them into this strange, you know, Gestapo-esque, semi-legal, whatever, whatever system that it is when— when it feels like it. Um, so the main, the main thrust of this, this New York Times article that we didn't get to yet is that, uh, so this raid happened, but a significant portion of the community of Morristown were not okay with it and rallied around um, the people who, who were uh, taken. So at least 300 people marched in downtown Morristown uh, to protest this. And a lot of it is because people have been there long enough, their families are part of the community, they're intermarried with the community, like they're not just immigrants from Mexico anymore, they're people from Morristown, so the community started to speak out against it.
2: So, Chad, is the community college you went to Walter State Community College? It is Walter State, yeah, that's the, wa- that's the community college. Yeah, so Walter there you go. Walter State
1: Community College. So, apparently that's uh, one of the places for organizing, St. Patrick's Church and Walter State Community College. Community College. Uh, yeah so
0: I mean, there's a lot it's like of churches seeing, uh, involved in this sort of work. yeah and a lot of
1: right and a lot of churches are very active in this stuff and I know we know uh, people involved in churches throughout Tennessee who are probably involved in this kind of thing right and so mm-hmm. I think it's like we've seen throughout uh, this year or the Trump era or whatever we're calling this is that I, I really think a lot of the best on the ground work being done is uh, happening in the south and we're seeing this um, idea of the South is is really enjoying this kind of racism. I think it's not being the case. Is there's a very diverse community where there's a lot of people who are out there willing to willing to fight for these communities, which is uh, good to see.
2: Right, and it also like the diversity. I think the diversity lends to people wanting to organize. I mean, when you actually you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, I hate immigrants. They should go back to their own country. They don't really know I, My th- That's my theory. I mean, mm. most of them don't know many immigrants. Right. Well, except, for, uh, except for all the ones I know who are good people. Yeah. Except, except on, for yeah.
1: those guys I know who work real hard. That work really hard. Yeah. The so, good ones. Yeah, just a conclusion on this, and we'll probably talk about this more, but I really recommend to everyone to read the initial New York Times article uh, by Miriam Jordan, I believe. Uh and then also read the Going South, the Southern Spaces uh, article, Going South, Coming North, Migration and Union, Organizing in Morristown, Tennessee, by Fran Ansley and Ann Lewis. It's, it's really well done. And if you can, watch the documentary, Morristown and the Hair and Sun. It's free. You can watch it on the Internet. It's very good. So just uh, after that, let's conclude with some uh, political shenanigans. Uh, so was it last night or the night before? We are having primary elections uh, throughout the South, throughout the country, and there is a big election in Virginia to see who the Republican and Democratic nominees for governor are going to be. And in, as the Republican nominee, we get our boy Cory Stewart. Who, if you aren't familiar with Corey Stewart, uh, Cory Stewart is a guy from Minnesota who decided he would rather um, cast himself as an old-school Virginia racist. And um, he is well known for cavorting with neo-Nazis and white supremacists unapologetically. So there are multiple, multiple pictures of him with rebel flags, with people wearing swastikas and neo-Nazi paraphernalia. Um, he's very anti-immigrant. Uh, and, and he's one of those interesting phenomena of people, much like Larry the Cable Guy from <laughs> Minnesota or other non Southern states who, who imagine
2: themselves as the a Southerner and relocate to try to sell that image. So, yeah, Corey Stewart. He says, uh, I think it, what is he, his saying is, uh, get racism done. Get racism and done. And I don't He, loves, over uh, it. he, he loves his AR 15. Who do doesn't? He loves- Who doesn't? Yeah. but yeah. it, isn't he the one like every time there's like a school every time there's a school shooting with an AR-15? He says, "Hey, it's not a bad. It's the. It's I love AR-15s or something yeah. like that." Yeah. Well, you know, most people
0: don't know that. The well, AR- over um, mm-hmm. in these primaries, it mm-hmm. seems that anybody who's even moderately moderate yeah. uh, is getting beat by the Trump base. Yeah. And what that's going to mean when we get past the primaries. If that's going to get enough um, uh, social democrats and democrats and all the rest of the Trump opposition people out to um, to really change things, I'm not sure, but I I can see it happening.
1: Well, yeah, that's the thing. Cause so Stanford lost in South Carolina um, against the Trump candidate, so it could go either way. I mean, we could if the Trump Candidates like Stewart and whoever it is that she ran against Stanford, if they are elected, then uh, we're in an interesting, interesting age. If they're beaten back, then maybe we've hit kind of the the limits of Trumpism. But I never count the Democratic Party out when it comes to failure, so I guess we'll see. Well,
0: it's interesting that uh, Bob Corker, who's resigning, Mm -hmm. um, uh, or he's not seeking re-election, I should say, Right. Um, That he just came out and described uh, the dedication within the party to Trump as being cult-like. I think those are the exact words, cult-like, but it's, uh, he sort of found a spine on his way out the door. (laughs) On his way out the door, uh, where it usually happens. Well, I know Corey Stewart came to prominence by calling the
1: uh, taking down of Confederate statues and compared it to ISIS, so there's that. all right. So, also, our final political news is uh, finally, finally, my hometown—well, my adjacent to my hometown, uh, Fort Walton Beach, Florida—has made the uh, Sean King Twitter and Facebook page. We're really excited. <laughs> our local Waffle House is now on the illustrious list of Waffle Houses with uh, racist police incidents at them. <laughs> um, yeah. So, the Waffle House on Highway 98 is uh, near Memorial. Is Had an incident. If you watch it, it's very frustrating to watch. It's one of those things, like, why are the police involved in this? I don't know. And and, you know, it's an African American couple who um, felt they were overcharged for a bill and asked about it. And instead of just sorting it out like reasonable people, Waffle House called the cops on them. And instead of the cops acting like reasonable people, they arrested them Um, after telling them come outside and arresting them for not paying their their bill, which was inside. Right, but I would just like to say, for the record, that Waffle House should have been, been visited by the police long ago for their uh, filthy, filthy floors, their inability to mop and sweep. That Waffle House should have been uh, visited by the police a long, long time ago. I don't know why. Like I live, that's the closest Waffle House to my mom's house, but I don't ever go there because it's constantly filthy. Mm. Anyway, that's the worst thing that ever happened to the Waffle House was it being dirty. That is. That's the worst thing <laughs> that's ever happened at a Waffle House. And just for the record, I'm completely astonished that something racist happened in Fort Walden, where our, uh, our local sheriff has called Black Lives Matter a, a terrorist organization. And when he was called out on it, he doubled down and said yes. And when our congressman, Matt Gates was asked about it, he said, well, they are a terrorist organization. I feel their mission has been perverted. This was right before he invited a uh, Holocaust denier to the State of the Union address. So we're just, things are looking up, Fort Walton. You can do it. There's probably uh, well, some
2: mid-to-high-ranking mid uh, Republican official in blackface in for, right now. <laughs> oh,
1: in oh. Fort <laughs> I think we know that there is. Right, uh, I forgot about her, and then she blocks me. All right, well, in that uplifting note... We're going to call it quits for this week. And with all the news going, we'll have a full, full week of stuff the next time. So see you guys next
2: time. See you next time. See you guys.
0: Farewell. All right. That was like quit. Yeah.